Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the APTA. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It does not constitute and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, rehabilitation, or treatment. Patients and other members of the general public should always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional regarding personal health and medical conditions. Hello. My name is Chris Burke, and I'm a physical therapist, and I serve as the chair of the DDSIG. And today's podcast is a continuation of our series that we're doing on rare diseases. So I'm very excited to be here today with Stacey Sheeran and Jeannie Stevenson. Jeannie, who is also part of our DDSIG team, and they're going to be talking to us about Friedrich's ataxia. So welcome, Stacey and Jeannie, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Uh, before we get started, I always like to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about your professional background and what you do. So, Stacy, how about we start with you? So, I work at UT Southwestern. I'm on faculty, and I split my time between we uh, still have a clinical practice, so I spend 20% of my time doing that. I do research part-time, and then I teach part-time. Great. Thank you. And Jeannie? I'm on faculty at University of South Florida. I've been here for 22 years teaching the neuro rehab curriculum. Before that, I worked in neuro rehab in rehab centers and rehab units within hospitals. I covered two clinics for USF Health. I covered the ALS clinic and I covered the normal pressure hydrocephalus clinic as well. And I've done research on ataxia. Uh, Friedrich's ataxia was the topic of my dissertation. And then I've also done research with spinal cerebellar ataxia. All right. Terrific. So I'm so excited to have both of you as experts today. So I think, um, Jeannie, we'll start with you. Why don't you first tell us, because since it's a rare disease, first talk to us a little bit about what Friedrich's ataxia actually is. Okay. Um, Friedrich's ataxia is a, a rare genetic disorder. Um, however, it's the most common of the uh, ataxias, of the genetic uh, um, degenerative ataxias. So it's an autosomal recessive degenerative disease. Typically, it shows up in children between the ages of 8 and 15 years old. It is uh, different from other ataxias in that it's a sensory ataxia, which means that it starts out with peripheral neuropathy. It affects the dorsal column medial lemniscal system of the spinal cord. And so the individuals um, have peripheral neuropathy. They have a loss of proprioception, vibration, touch sensation, starting in their lower extremities. And so this is why they have early loss of balance and um, gait, gait deficits. Um, and uh, the balance is worse with the eyes closed. The prevalence is about 1 in 40,000 in the U.S. and about 1 in 50,000 worldwide. Starts in children. It progresses over a 10 to 15 year period of time to where the individual loses mobility and balance. And, and what's the overall prognosis like for these um, children who are diagnosed? They can live a fairly um, normal uh, childhood, although... They begin with the signs and symptoms of FA, which are muscle weakness, 
a loss of balance, gait ataxia, dysarthria, dysphagia, and that gets progressively worse over a 10 to 15 year period, maybe 20 years. So um, in my dissertation, I studied young adults because that is the age group at which they begin losing their ambulatory abilities. Their gait becomes worse. So the prognosis is that uh, they may not survive into um, their 30s. Do you find that these children are sometimes often maybe misdiagnosed? And and what's your the gold standard for confirming the, the FA diagnosis? The gold standard is genetic testing because FA is caused by a mutation of the frataxin gene, which is part of chromosome 9. Um, and so what happens with the disease, to get into it in a little bit more detail, is uh, because of the, the lacking of this frataxin gene, then the frataxin protein is missing in our cells, particularly in the mitochondria. So what happens is you have an accumulation of iron stores within the cells, and that causes um, uh, inflammation, increased damage within the cell. And uh, this particularly affects cells that have a high metabolism, like the mitochondria, but particularly for systems, the nervous system, the cardiac system, and the pancreas. So FA is different you know, from some other ataxia in that it affects other body systems. It's not just the cerebellum. Matter of fact, it starts, you know, with this peripheral neuropathy and that's what's affecting their balance initially. And then the cerebellum and some of its pathways start to be affected. And then they also may have cardiomyopathy, congestive heart failure, and um, diabetes and scoliosis. So they have some other things. So it is critical that a child be properly diagnosed. And yes, it is common for misdiagnosis, but the gold standard is to go through genetic testing and that confirms, you know, the uh, missing, missing um, frataxin gene. And then typically the family undergoes testing too. So it is important that the child undergo the genetic testing. Also, they'll do MRIs to look at the nervous system. Uh, the spinal cord and and the brain areas that are affected, like the brainstem and cerebellar areas that are affected, um, to see look for degeneration of those particular areas. Um, and I want to say too that it's really important that the child and family find their way to a large center where there are experts mm-hmm. in FA. There are certain ones around the country, um, certain individuals that are experts like um, CHOP is one, the um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, I have treated um, different spinal cerebellar degeneration, but mostly because I work in adults, I've never actually worked with someone with Friedrich's ataxia. So I was surprised by all the other systems that were involved, like you said, the endocrine, the musculoskeletal, cardiovascular. I also read that there's other involvement like hearing, vision, foot deformities, um, so I would imagine having a team approach and other specialists would be beneficial. Um, maybe we'll, Definitely. yeah, we can talk probably a little bit later about interventions, but, um, there's no cure at this time for FA, correct? So medically, how are things managed? Is it more symptomatic? Uh, medical management is definitely symptomatic. Um, there's no cure, but there are a lot of drugs in the pipeline for Friedrich's ataxia. There's a lot of funding for the research. Um, there's an organization that 
that patients and their families can join, which is called the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance. There's also the National Ataxia Foundation um, that they can join, but the FERA, the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance, has a clinical registry that that patients and families can join, um, and they can um, see if they qualify to join some of these clinical trials that are going on. There are some very exciting drugs that have been tested over time. Of course, these kids, because of the involvement, well, these individuals, not just kids, because of the involvement of other systems, they have to have a really good endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. They have to be followed from the very beginning by a very good cardiologist. And then, of course, the therapies, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, like you mentioned, a multidisciplinary team approach is, is critical from an early age. So getting the diagnosis, testing the other family members, and then starting with a team approach early on can really help a lot to make sure that they're managed medically. All right, great. That, that's a, a terrific background, Jeannie. Thank you. So, so let's say now we have this young adult who's been referred to your practice. Stacey, why don't you talk me through a little bit about your initial assessment or what, what are some of the areas that you're going to look at? Absolutely. I think one of the things that you have to consider is where they are in their disease process. Um, your evaluation could be much different initially if they're you know, a year or two into their diagnosis as compared to 10 years in. And um, one of the things that I think um, as you read through the literature, they'll talk about making sure that although uh, many of these individuals are non-ambulatory later in their disease process, still assessing sitting balance, strength, those same considerations that you would do for people who are ambulatory as well. So I think when you're considering your uh, evaluation, you have to think a little bit about the disease process. So making sure you do a really awesome uh, sensory assessment, making sure you look at vibration, perception, and looking at strength. Another thing that you mentioned, Chris, is that there can be a lot of orthopedic considerations to so doing a really nice assessment for scoliosis, foot deformities, everything from pes cavus to hammer toes are something that we have to consider. So making sure you do a lot of your assessments and maybe even an, uh, your gait assessment with shoes off so you can see how um, all the, the joints are functioning at that point. Um, and then I think one of the great things, and I don't know if you guys feel like this, but helping to make sure that they're getting to some of those other um, specialists. So, you know, I, I didn't say this, but of course, a, a balance assessment would be important as well. Um, probably one of the most important things. But as you look at it and you're doing your, you know, typical impairment-based evaluation, looking from the orthopedic to the sensory, to the musculoskeletal and strength, and, but also um, examining their balance, their gait, their transfers. I think one of the things as... Um, a PT that's really neat is if we get to to go on the journey with these individuals, we have the opportunity to do some preventative care as well. So helping to make sure that we're looking forward to thinking about orthotics, um, assistive devices, everything from walkers to wheelchairs, and also being a great resource for um, assistive, uh, assistive equipment. So feeding, cooking, bathing, so that we are thinking about those um, other pieces that we can help uh, individuals stay as independent and um, involved in the life roles they want to be in as long as possible. Okay. You know, um, Jeannie gave us a good uh, overview about early on that mostly it's sensory ataxia, right? It's the dorsal columns and the dorsal root ganglion. But I read somewhere that later the cerebellum starts to degenerate. So do you start to see a lot of um, coordination issues as well? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, the vestibular system can be a part of that as well. So you can get upper extremity and lower extremity ataxia. Um, and so some of that probably you'll see the sensory ataxia early on, but the cerebellum does play a role later. So you can see some of that in combination with it. So one of the things that I think is really great about ataxia in general is it's got a couple of really good outcome measures. Uh, so when you're looking at it, you can use the Sarah, um, the ICARS, and then the FARS, which is the Frederick Ataxia specific taxi rating scale. So there's m- multiple different scales that help you to be able to look at all the pieces that can be affected from your upper extremity coordination to your lower extremity coordination to your sitting balance, your standing balance and gait as well. So it's a really nice, comprehensive way to look at those. So I'm glad you brought up the uh, the ataxia rating scales because the Sarah I am familiar with, the other two not so much. Um, is there one that they prefer to use? Uh, typically, the neurologists will use the Friedrich's ataxia rating scale Um Okay. Uh, they'll start with that early on and they'll do it serially over time because that is uh, that was developed by Supermoni et al. Um, and uh, that is the, you know, primary um, rating scale that's used by the neurologist. And there is a part um, there there is a, a section that deals with balance and with uh, standing and walking um, in that. So a physical therapist may be involved in that part of it. But Certainly, you know, we're all familiar with the Sarah. The Sarah has, although it was developed for spinal cerebellar ataxia, it's very beneficial um, for a PT to use that with somebody with FA as well because it's it's got that coordination piece. Um, it seems like your evaluation could be very lengthy. There's so many systems to look at going from cardiac to orthopedic to the, you know, the neurological yeah. uh, area. Um, if we're thinking about gait and balance and um outcome measures that we as physical therapists use. I know there's probably no specific FA, but ones that have been identified. Um, The Berg balance scale, um, I used that for my dissertation. And part of the reason I did was because it has been used in the FA population. It has been used in people with ataxia and has been uh, validated um, uh, with uh, ataxic population. So the Berg balance scale is oftentimes used. Um, They're uh, there have been several studies that have looked at these individuals with FA longitudinally um, and use different clinical rating scales. Um, my my dissertation study was a two-year longitudinal study of young adults with FA, and I used the um, the 10 meter walk, the Burke balance scale, but also the uh, gate right mat and the biodex balance SD. Um, there was another study that followed up on mine. It was an international multi-site uh, trial that looked at individuals, uh, both children and young adults with FA. And they were particularly interested in, uh, and that was by Milne et al., a large group of individuals um, that are, you know, that work in ataxia, but um, they used the Berg balance scale. They used the 10 meter walk. They used the FARS. Um, they also used the gate right mat. Um, and um, I believe they used the DGI mm-hmm. as well. And they found the DGI to be very beneficial in the children. Uh, although FA is a bit different, uh, um, probably more people, more physical therapists have experience working with people with SCA, possibly, um, than FA. However, 
the um, aside from the fact that you do need to watch these other systems, um, like the cardiac system, and you know assess their their vitals and the RP and that type of thing, keep a close eye on that. The examination and treatment is not so different uh, with somebody with FA than it would be for other degenerative cerebellar ataxias. Like we said, you know, although um, their problems begin in the lower extremities and with the peripheral neuropathy and with the incoordination um, and the balance and gait issues, the the problems move up into the trunk and into the upper extremities. And then the cerebellum and the brainstem become more and more involved over time. The cerebellum, particularly like the dentate nucleus and the spinocerebellar pathways, and then some of the cranial nerves are involved. That's why they have a loss of vision and hearing later on. Um, so eventually they have all the same um, signs and symptoms of somebody with a degenerative cerebellar okay. ataxia, like spinal cerebellar ataxia. So looking at like, you know, our basic core outcome measures, you're you're doing a gait speed, a Berg balance, you know, a gait adaptability with DGI. Stacey, any others that you like to use? Always got to throw the six-minute walk test in there. So that's another I would add. All right. So Jeannie, you did mention a little bit about your study that you had done in 2017, which was the longitudinal gait and balance decline in FA. Um, and you were looking at using the gait right and the biodex, so more computerized testing. You do you want to share with us what some of the, you know, briefly what your findings were? Sure. Um, so that study was a um FARA funded study called the FA Biomarker Study. And um, the preliminary results of it, the baseline data was published in 2014, and then all the data was published, like the the more longitudinal data was published in 2017. That was a study that I did here at USF Health with Teresa Zezowitz and her team. Um, she is one of the folks that I mentioned as far as, you know, national experts in ataxia. She's here at USF Health. Um, so um, anyway, we got this grant from the uh, from FARA, and we started the FA biomarker study. And this was a study of young adults with Friedrich's ataxia, and, and we observed them over two years. It was not an interventional study; it was just a, a observational study to um, a look at the changes in their gait, balance, and neurologic status over two years, and also looking at the correlation looking at the benefits of these biomarkers, these type of devices to study their balance and their gait and the outcome measures and looking at the correlations, for example, between the Burke balance scale and the Biodex SD uh, data that we generated. At a basic level, the obviously we noticed definite decline in their balance and gait over the two-year period of time. Um, so... I can't really show my my graphs, but each of the different outcome measures showed um, a decline. Um, so, for example, the Berg balance scale scores uh, changed over time. Um, they were getting they were getting worse in terms of their static and dynamic balance. Um, in terms of the Biodex Balance SD, it's a good device. I did the um, limits of stability test mm -hmm. on there and then postural sway because there is a force plate built into it. And so one thing I noticed, um, different types of 
ataxia, cerebellar ataxia show different patterns of postural sway oh, interesting. that get worse over time. So for example, like folks with spinal cerebellar ataxia show more AP sway, but the individuals with Friedrich's ataxia showed more medial lateral sway mm. that got worse over time. And that was brought out by the postural sway test on the Biodex SD. Far as limits of stability, um, you know, obviously they showed the typical cerebellar ataxia type symptoms with overshooting the target, undershooting the target, a lot of like extraneous moving movement trying to get to the targets. Um, now, as far as the gait, these individuals show uh, decreased gait speed. They show um, shorter step and stride lengths. Um, they show uh, increased time in stance phase and increased time in double limb support and decreased time in swing phase. Any patient that has balance deficits, they're going to want to spend more time on their two feet, obviously. Correct. Yeah. Um, rather than more time up in swing. And that got worse over time during the two years that I was working with them. Um, also, they show um, even more gait variability than some of these other uh, populations. They show significant gait variability. Right. Um, now, that's a common symptom of ataxia in general, but I found that to be even more so with these individuals with FA. As far as their walking, you know, I saw different ones of them um, showing different compensations for their balance and gait issues. So some of them would go with a wide base gait, you know, to try to maintain their walking as long as they could. Uh, one of them in particular developed kind of a steppage gait pattern. Um, not as frequent, but some of them do have spasticity in combination with, so another gentleman had more of a spastic gait pattern. Um, so long story short, I observed during the two years uh, a decline in their balance mm -hmm. and gait. And this affected them in their daily life as well. These were young adults that were, say, finishing high school, finishing college, and trying to enter the workforce, you know, and yet they were really showing a decline in their walking and having to, you know, go from ambulation to maybe use of a manual wheelchair at least, or sometimes using a power wheelchair to get around in the community. So right. they were having to balance the two aspects of their life, trying to finish college and start in the workforce. And yet at the same time, they were dealing with their worsening balance and walking to where they were now having to use more assistive technologies to make that happen and to be to be able to participate out in the community with their friends and family. Right. So it seems like this disease has findings of both lower motor neuron and upper motor neuron, right? And I think I yes. read somewhere that cortical spinal tract is involved and right. that would explain your spasticity and you have the neuropathy that would explain your, your steppage gait. But Jeannie, you started talking about, you know, like these individuals and, you know, their age and trying to get on with, you know, starting off their life. So Stacey, let's move over to you. If we start talking about um, interventions and, and especially thinking these are people who get diagnosed, you know, in their early stages, but they can live with the disease for many years. You know, what are some of the considerations or best practices for like across the lifespan that you start to address in the clinic? Yeah, the the research in the world of Frederick's ataxia treatment is difficult. Um, I think it's one of the areas my my research has been in Parkinson's. And so when you start to look at Parkinson's in the last 
23 years, it's exploded. There's yes, so exactly. It's exciting, actually. Yeah, it's amazing. You can literally say, I have this very specific question. You can probably go find an answer or a research study. The Frederick Detaxia literature is not quite the same. And so I, I'm glad that Jeannie said that you, you can pull from maybe some of the other literatures for degenerative cerebellar conditions. And so that opens up some more doors. But I think when you start to look at the research, we have a couple of really big themes that come out. So we know that we need to have high intensity exercise. So when you start to look through any of the cerebellar literature, it's going to be really clear that the dosage is going to be much more substantial than for other populations. So a lot of times you'll see people have, you know, hour and a half sessions, five days a week. And that's um, something that's interesting as a PT to try and figure out how do we facilitate such a high dosage in the confines of our reimbursement system. Um, so I think high intensity is really one of the things that you'll see that people talk a lot about. We need a lot of repetitions. The cerebellum is involved and we know the cerebellum does a lot of our motor learning. So we want to make sure that we're providing plenty of opportunities for that. Um, and then it, it really does the, the interventions. There's it spans kind of your evaluation impairments that you're going to find. So there's quite a bit to look at intensive balance. Um, and when you start to read through it, I think it's really important to make sure again that your intensive balance is not only for those who are ambulatory, but those who are non-ambulatory as well. So making sure that we're really still addressing seated balance in a way that's productive. Um, there is. Uh, a call for strengthening for people um, with Frederick's ataxia. I think your expectations have to be tempered considering there can be a, a neuropathy component, but it's important from the beginning to really focus on strengthening. And I think in the cerebellar literature in general, making sure that we focus on the hip and the core as much as we can, because the more we can provide that central stability, the better the legs move. Um, and again, Frederick's ataxia is a little bit different with the sensory component, but when you read some of the literature about cerebellar ataxia, it's pretty clear that a lot of the ataxia symptoms from the cerebellum can be a, at least partially addressed through the trunk and the, the hips. So if we can give control of the trunk and the hips mm. through strengthening, but also through external cueing, uh, I think that we can provide um, a lot of extra stability for gait balance. Um, and then beyond that, it be begins to look a little bit more, um, there's a lot of a lot of smaller studies. So when we look at exergaming, a lot of people or ataxias talk about exergaming because it's fun, especially when you're talking about a population that could be younger. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they might be a little more compliant. I think, you know, one of the things you always have to think about is how are you setting up the exergaming to make sure you're getting at the things that you really need to get done. Um, and then there's there's never really been any great studies on using assistive devices, but I think one of the things that as a PT, I really want to provide all the options from, you know, a lesser device to wheelchairs so that we can provide as they change and as they go through their disease progression, we can give them what they need in the moment. So there's a lot of different um, reviews that people have written where they'll talk about gate devices are really important to help provide that stability, prevent falls, and allow people to still progress. I had a patient not too long ago that um, came to see me and he had really never used a walker. And I gave him, um, it was a it was a walker that had platforms and four wheels, which is a fast walker. And sometimes you can't use those, but he mm -hmm. loved it. And his, they took it overnight and brought it back the next day. And his mom was like, it's the best thing that's happened to us in the last few years because we were able to go to dinner without being afraid of falling. We were able to go to the mall without being afraid of falling. So I think sometimes providing those tools 
to help people still be able to do those things they need to do and stay active um, can be really helpful. You've touched on so many excellent points. So <laughs> yes. I'm going to tease out a couple and ask a couple of questions to you. So you, you talked about, you know, dosage and reps and high intensity, and, and we all know that that's been the push, right? The high intensity. Are there any concerns with this population because of the cardiac issues um, with monitoring them? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What I've seen and w- both in the clinic and in the literature is that it's still appropriate to do aerobic activity and activities that will challenge the heart. You want to make sure you don't go from zero to a hundred. So you want to ramp up slowly. Also having that great physician on board who's monitoring their um, their progression. And I think it becomes all important to make sure we're watching heart rate, blood pressure, uh, their response to exercise. But I have not seen anywhere, and Jeannie, you can comment on this, that it's contraindicated to do that. Okay, that's great. Um, and then you talked about strengthening and focusing on the proximal and the core, which I agree, we always see, especially with my individuals with MS, we focus that area, we see a carryover to balance. Um, A lot of times when we think lower motor neuron, we think we're a little little cautious that we have to avoid any overwork damage. Any concerns with this population there? Or like if you have strength that's below a two plus, would you avoid that? Um, maybe so. You'd want to, um, you know, use um, caution uh, with muscles that are of low strength, just like you would with somebody mm-hmm. with other degenerative diseases like ALS or, or you know, um, MS, uh, because the disease does affect the the cells and it affects those lower motor neurons, um, and it affects uh, some of the spinal cord and spinal cord tracts. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think. I agree with what Stacy said that a focus on the core and the proximal musculature is really going to help anybody that has cerebellar um, ataxia type signs and symptoms. You know the dysmetria, the uh, lack of lack mm. of stability, the balance issues. Uh, they're they're young people too, the, so I think um, having them exercise and uh, not being afraid to exercise is very important. Yeah. Stacy said, as long as they're being monitored by uh, by their ataxia expert and by a cardiologist using an RPE scale, mm-hmm. um, monitoring their vital signs, um, and just uh, being very observant in how they're right. how they're looking. Um, and you had also mentioned uh, motor learning, right? We know the cerebellum is so involved with that. We actually had um, Amy Bastian on previously for a podcast, who's who's the expert, right? Mm-hmm. And she had said that, you know, um, one of the main things to focus on was not always so much intensity, but challenge mm-hmm. to and seeing improvements in balance. And I was wondering, do you find that's the same with the with the FA population? Absolutely. I think it's actually really interesting when you start to look at some of the literature for for degenerative cerebellar issues, they've found that people that respond the best, even in a home exercise program, are the people that are challenged the most. And so I think finding that individual, it's so great that we have all the outcome measures that we have. We can try and pinpoint where they are in the kind of balance spectrum and really try to provide the most aggressive and intense balance interventions. Because I think that the system, it responds to being challenged. That's how we're going to get it to change. And so I think you're right. The, the higher intensity in terms of balance, which doesn't mean it's necessarily cardiovascular, but still that high intensity right. and challenge with it. 
Exactly. She had also brought up, you know, can we expect to see changes in motor learning because, you know, we're seeing degeneration in the cerebellar. And one of the things she pointed out was that if the nuclei were affected, that lessened your chances. And I think, Jeannie, you might have mentioned something about the dentate nuclei, right? So is there some situations where you might not see motor learning and you might move to more of an errorless kind of learning um, program? There is there is quite a bit of literature and some controversy about whether the cerebellum, um, whether people with degenerative cerebellar disease or any kind of cerebellar disease, whether they can uh, learn, you know, whether they have that motor learning capabilities. And um, I've been looking at some of Amy Bastian's uh, more recent work with upper extremity and mm -hmm. In, in folks with cerebellar um, dysfunction and um, related to motor learning, but but um, I think I think there there is um, the ability for motor learning um, in in this population. I think it's like Stacy said. There's not a lot of research with interventions for individuals with Friedrich's ataxia, but there are a few, and um, they do mm -hmm. show like there's one that compares. Um, a rehab program within a center, it, it takes a, a group of people with FA and splits them in half and half are undergoing an intensive program in the rehab facility and the other half are on a home program. And those that were in the rehabilitation program definitely showed improvement more so than the control group that underwent um, a more less intensive home program. There are some studies by ILG et al. And, um, Bastian and Keller, Keller and Bastian, that look at coordinative interventions, coordination interventions, coordination um, exercises for this population, and it does show benefit. Now, that's not specifically with people with Friedrich's ataxia, mm -hmm. but like I said before, I think that because they have very similar signs and symptoms, um, we don't really need to treat their ataxia-type symptoms differently than we would somebody else with spinal cerebellar ataxia. There needs to be more research on interventions for individuals with Friedrich's ataxia, and um, I'd love to do that myself sometime. Um, so we also talked, Stacey, you touched a little bit on ambulation and the benefit of assistive devices, and I know um, a lot of times we would see get more gait abnormalities when we vary the speed. Is it best when we're training individuals with cerebellar to work on trying to increase their speed or let them be self-selected? Because I, I know a lot of times they'll compensate and slow themselves down just because it's a little bit safer. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, uh, I, I've read, I read an article where I kind of talked about there's a sweet spot. You go too okay. slow and you don't have momentum and some of those things. You go too fast and the ataxic symptoms kind of can mess with some of your mechanics. Um, so my thought is always just clinically to focus on the core stability and the balance and then kind of let the speed come along as it comes. I think speed is not usually my very first focus. It's something that I hope will come as we work on the other pieces. There is, um, There was a case report where they looked at using the metronome for people with Okay, ataxia. like with our PD individuals, yeah. And so what they found is, well, I mean, clearly it will help with variability. Um, but I think that's another way that once you get to the point where maybe you've addressed the trunk, the core, you know, your, your pieces that you can, then as you want to start working on 
something like speed, you could do it very slowly and intentionally where you can watch and see how it affects their gait quality, their balance, um, and try and work with that variability piece as well with the metronome. Oh, that that's a great suggestion. I would think also resisted walking might be something because that would kick in more of the core as well and potentially slow them down while still working them hard. Sure. Absolutely. So you talked about a lot of times they'll progress to assisted devices. Do you see a fast uh, movement toward then using um, wheelchairs or powered mobility or scooters? Is that usually the the direction that that the you know they'll go in? Yeah, I think I think it's the it, that depending on the speed of their disease severity, most people will hit the walkers and then end up with something like a powered chair. I think. Um, Considering there's the scoliosis issues that a lot of mm-hmm. people have um, along the way that sometimes having a better seating system, um, yeah, is really helpful to make sure that we support their posture and prevent further, you know, issues with their scoliosis. Depending on the age of onset and also the severity of their genetic issue, like um, the number of repeats that they have, um, the number of issues that they have uh, mm-hmm. with the frataxin gene um, can determine how severe this the disease is going to be and how quickly it's going to progress. Um, so if if a child, for example, starts, you know, six, seven, eight years of age and they have a more extensive um, genetic issue, um, they may progress along to where they would need the power wheelchair by their late teens, for example, or their mid-teens. Um, whereas if if someone doesn't start with it and, you know, with the signs and symptoms into late childhood or early adolescence, they may retain their ambulation into their early adulthood. Um, but by, say, like their late 20s, they may need a wheelchair um, and then into a power wheelchair. Um, it does shorten lifespan. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, as I said before, uh, they can live into their thirties, but it does shorten lifespan for sure. And thinking that, you know, in regards to the prognosis, I mean, how do you deal with the, you know, that outlook for both the, the individual, the family, you know, the individual's mental health, um, how do you address that? I read an article from 2023 and one of the things that they um, had in that, in their actual plan of care for the research study was looking at having psychology involved. Mm -hmm. And I loved that they added that in. It was an inpatient rehab. So that's beautiful team of his speech therapists, OTs, PTs, but just also providing a great resource to have someone they can bounce ideas off of who is um, skilled in helping people begin to adapt and work through some of the, I think, the really big um, issues that come as you age with a disease like this. Yes, especially because it's such a young population. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. So I think I've hit, you guys have touched on almost all my questions that I had, which is great. But what I always like to do is when we wrap up, I want you to give me maybe some clinical pearls or words of wisdom that someone listening, a clinician who maybe doesn't have an experience with working with Friedrich's ataxia can keep in mind when they're working with this population? What would be the main point that sticks out to you? So I already said it, but I think if you can control the trunk, it changes a lot of things for these individuals. So 
<clears throat> to me, that means that a standard two-wheel walker sometimes is not sufficient because you can't get the trunk stability you need. So you may have to go with something more significant and more substantial as you progress through. So making sure you have a great exercise program for the core and making sure you have, um, as you progress through assistive devices that you have control of the trunk. And I will just say one other thing. Um, there, uh, Jeannie mentioned Milne um, out of Australia, and they have a really cool website that they made where they are, they have 15 to I don't know, 30 chapters, and it's all about the research associated with Friedrich's ataxia, all the different issues that you can imagine. And so it's a really nice place to go through. It's available to anyone. And if you have questions about any of the pieces, because there are so many, hmm. they've laid it out really nicely and pulled the literature into a really nice condensed place. So I'm happy to send that link to you if you like as well. So you can have Yes, that. that's a great resource that we'll put in our show notes as well. All right. Awesome. All right, Jeannie, anything else you want to close us off with? Having a support network, one thing. The other thing is, I would say to physical therapists, don't be afraid to treat people with Friedrich's ataxia. Yes, it's a rare disease. We're not going to see it commonly in our practice. However, working with them is no different than working with anyone else that, you know, it's a little different. They have other systems that are involved, but um, not to be afraid to, you know, get them on the mat and have them do exercises and, and do that intensive training that Stacy was talking about. Don't be intimidated by working with these individuals just because it's a rare disease. Uh, they have some of the, now many of the signs and symptoms that are typical of others with cerebellar ataxia. Um, and um, they need to move, they need to uh, exercise and uh, try to retain their mobility as long as possible. Well, that's great. I, I, I have a much better understanding of where I would go in regards to, you know, assessment and intervention if I came across one of these um, patients. So to move away from uh, clinical discussion, we have a tradition on this podcast that we always like to ask our um, uh, speakers who have come to join us what they like to do in their spare time that is not PT related. All right. So Stacey, anything you want to share with us? Well, my first thought was, what is spare time? Yeah. But no, I do I do have spare time. So I I have um a dog. We have a German Shepherd and we love to hike. So clearly Dallas is not like a great hiking spot. So anytime we get the chance, we head out of the city and hike. Okay, that's good. All right. Jeannie, what do you do? Um I also have a, a dog, a little dog, though, um, Bella, who is only six pounds, um, little Yorkshire Terrier. And so she and I walk a lot. But um, in my spare time, I love to spend time with my friends and family. And I, I like to go kayaking, canoeing, um, and camping, actually. My sister and brother-in-law are really into camping, so I join them. I spent a lot of time in Canada as a child, so I, I love the outdoors. So that's a big difference, Canada, from the hot Florida you're in now, right? Right. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, and a special thank you to our two wonderful guests, Stacey Sheeran and Jeannie Stevenson, for chatting with us today about Friedrich's ataxia. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group, the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy and its collaborators disclaim any liability to any party for any loss or damage by errors or omissions in this publication or podcast. The views or opinions expressed are those of the individual creators and do not necessarily represent the position of the Academy of Neurological Physical Therapy. Our podcast team includes Parm Paget, Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, K. 
Ken Vinaco, Jeffrey Schmidt, and Shannon Brown, and I am Chris Burke. For more information on this SIG and the ANPT, or to subscribe to our newsletter, visit the ANPT website, which is www.neuropt.org. Also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And lastly, please share this episode with a friend or colleague. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay of the PT Pinecast for providing music. And thanks for listening. Okay. Thank you, Thank you for having to sit through me listen, reading all my uh, required disclaimers. and Always got to uh-huh. be safe. I forgot to put in a plug for our CSM talk. Well, Jeannie, you, I mean, because we, we could always add that in. Uh, yeah, Stacy and I would like to put in a plug for our talk uh, at Combined Sections Meeting in Boston in 2024. It's going to be related to physical therapy management of individuals with ataxia, all types of ataxia. And that's on Saturday. Okay, I'm going to mark that down and make sure I'm I'm there. I look forward to it. Thank you. You don't seem like the camping type to me. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Okay. I, I love the outdoors. I love the outdoors.